It's okay. They'll think we're in shock. We are in shock, Jack. Well, then this should be easy. Welcome to Tessa Watches Lost, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is Tessa, the Hurley to my Saeed. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it took you a second on that one. Yeah. This week, we're talking about the season four episodes, Cabin Fever and There's No Place Like Home, part one. After weeks of side quests, we're finally on to the main mission. Yay? Yeah. Let's begin with poor Locke. God damn it. If Locke ends up being the main character of this show, I will throw myself out of a window. You do such a good job of anticipating my questions. The flashbacks for Cabin Fever take us through a highlight reel, if you will. We begin with a teenage girl pulling the full aerial. She's not a child anymore. And runs into traffic, causing a young John to be born extremely prematurely. How do you feel about this? I mean, I knew it was going to be him as soon as we started going through the the storyline of like she's in love with an older dude who's clearly taking advantage of her and it's in the 50s we've already seen Ben be born makes sense that this would be Locke quality mom material right oh yeah both the moms in this are horrible I mean both his mother's mother who is like clearly like really neglectful and his actual mother who just like abandons him so next time as you intimate we see John and he is not with either of these people because he was given up for adoption so fast. He is a five-year-old John playing backgammon in a foster home. Who shows up there but one eyeliner champion, Richard Alpert. I was really wondering when we were going to see this character again because we haven't seen him, I think, since last season. Well, we spent some good times with him this week. Richard sits him down and gets out a bunch of objects and he asks him to select an object. Richard is very excited when it looks like John's going to pick the Book of Laws, but he doesn't. And Richard Alpert is now gone. Yeah, so this is really interesting to me, especially because I I am still very interested in the thread of who are the others, because we know that Ben came over with the Dharma Initiative and integrated himself, took over the others. You know, it it kind of implies that that's what happened when he was a young man. But we do also know that these people, led by Richard Alpert, are the actual, well, I, I don't want to use the word indigenous because that has connotations I'm not sure belong on this particular island, but they are the people who apparently lived there before the Dharma Initiative showed up. One, I feel like this proves that this dude is immortal. He hasn't aged a day since that moment that he sees a young Locke, and Locke is clearly much older than him now, so that's interesting. It also implies that the people who lived on the island were able to get to the mainland long before the Dharma Initiative got there, so that's also an interesting thing. But I am so fascinated to know how this connects with Jacob because I feel like it has to in a lot of ways because, I don't know, he shows up, he meets a young Locke, 
he sees that Locke has drawn a picture, a, a child's picture of the smoke monster. He's very excited going all Professor X on Locke, telling him he might be special, that he has a school for special kids, all of that stuff. And then he says, you know, which one of these things belongs to you? To me, what this sounds like, it sounds like two things. It sounds like somebody is being reincarnated because that's the only reason I feel like he would ask someone which one of these things already belongs to you, right? Sure. I mean, like, that's what it feels like. By asking him that, he's like, this belonged to somebody in a past life. You have to pick, like, which one is yours. And Locke picks wrong, showing that he's not this person, or at least not yet. The other thing that I think is interesting is because we're dealing so much with this like chosen one narrative that Locke has made about his own life that seems to maybe being confirmed a little bit in this episode, it feels a lot, and here's some spoilers for people who haven't read Wheel of Time, but it kind of feels a lot- La, 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 la. You know this one already. It feels a lot like the idea of Moraine coming into the village- and saying, like, the dragon is one of you. Like, we know it's one of you, but we don't know which one. And the way it's explained later when the dragon is actually revealed is is that all of the people around him who could have been the dragon are almost dragons. Like, they're people who have almost the right combination of things. Like, uh, Perrin and Matt, for an example, have the same kind of, like, distortion of probability that happens around them that happens around Rand, but they are not the dragon. However, they are still like signified in the same way. So that's kind of what John's storyline feels like to me is that like maybe he's not this person they're looking for, but maybe he's like almost that person. Cool. I still hate it though. I The whole time when they were like, you're special. And like, he's trying to like prove that he's special. I was just like, Please, God, please let him not be right. He's going to be so insufferable if he was right. Yeah, like he's not insufferable now. (laughs) Also, you mentioned the connection going back to explaining the Dharma Initiative and who was on the island before them. This is a topic of discussion between Lost, Hurley, and Ben, at least briefly during this episode. So moving forward, next time we check in with John Locke, he is 16 years old, being bullied. And he turns up his bloodied nose at a science camp that his teacher is trying to convince him to go to. And he gets especially angry when he finds out that one, Richard Alpert, is connected with this science camp. And this brings us to Locke's famous, most used words. Don't tell me what I can't do. He does like those words a lot. Well, you shouldn't tell him what he can't do. I'm with him on that. Well, I like that his teacher's like, you're not the main character, which first of all, John this is Locke- teacher of the year right here, yeah, by the way. Let's... John Locke has a very narrow view of what a main character is because he's like, it's not a nerd. I'm not a nerdy scientist as if there aren't like thousands of properties of, pol- of popular culture involving scientists as main characters. We have one on this show. His name's Daniel. Yeah. And so like he like- views himself as a hero but in a very specific way like a hero is a very physical person he says i box i i like cars like he's he's like a person that fits more of that like stereotypical action hero type of he wants to be indiana jones yeah exactly which is why he picked the knife right yeah i i agree it's it's fascinating like i 
I've mostly enjoyed the flash forwards that we've gotten this season. I'm glad that we're moving more in that direction than in the flashback direction. But this is a good flashback in the sense that it confirms a lot of things about Locke's character that we knew before. But now I feel like we have a better grasp on why he feels that way. And I think the one thing that's really sympathetic about these series of scenes and John himself is the idea that for John, self-determination is really important. Yes. And, you know, he is constantly, you know, being orphaned, having to grow up in a foster uh, home, having to deal with being a nerd in high school, having to deal with having a crappy job, having to deal with a father who conned him, having to deal with all of these things and and the narrative of his life is that he is never allowed by the world, by the universe, whatever, to do what it is that he wants to do. Now, leaving aside that as a white dude, he is the most likely to be able to do what he wants to do in life. And yeah, he's had some bad luck, but you know, still a marker of privilege to be this upset about it. But... I still find it very sympathetic. Well, I think that the problem is is that there's a conflict in what he thinks a hero is. You're right that self-determination is very important for Locke. He wants to be in control of his life. He wants to be able to do things that people have told him that he can't do. However, he also wants to be chosen. He also wants to be called. Right. This... He wants the hero's journey. And so the problem is, is that he... All of these things have set him back, and yet at the end of the day, he won't actually act on that self-determination to go out there and just live his life. He's just going to wait around for a call. He won't make his own kind of music. Exactly, which is the reason why uh, I keep thinking of her as Leela. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's why she broke up with him, because she was like, you can't. Yeah. You can't leave it behind. Like you just want to sit around and think about the ways in which things could be different instead of going out and making them different. That's why the island is so important to him. To him, this is his hero's call. So when I talked about the Matrix on Wild Pretty Things, I mentioned that the idea of free will versus fate isn't a question that the Wachowskis have ever really been interested in. It's it's at at its core for them, it's a false dilemma. Uh, this has some, um, and you and I have talked about this, and I think we talked a little bit about it on the episode, but I won't go into it here, but this is, this is an issue when it comes to um, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, and, and, and sex, that there are some people who believe that you have free will to decide and there are other people who believe you are what you are and you'd better just get over it. And while I don't think The Matrix is ultimately a good place to discuss this, uh, as I mentioned in Matrix Resurrections, the only person asking this question is the video game bro who almost failed seventh grade. Well, Locke didn't almost fail seventh grade. This show, one of the things that makes me so disappointed about this show is it takes up this question. And they may or may not be prepared to answer it. But this John Locke situation, as you describe it, is very much a meditation on this question. Well, it's also a meditation on what happens if you get too caught up in the question. Right. Right. What happens to you as a character if you're constantly 
trying to prove yourself, but also waiting around for fate to decide. Yeah. And so the last part of this flashback chronologically is back when Locke was going to rehab after he broke his back. And, and of course, the circumstances behind that are yet another example of what we've been talking about. But we find out this time that during rehab, one of the orderlies who's taking care of him is actually Abaddon in disguise. And they have a, a long discussion about this because at this point, Locke's become very dejected. He's giving up on the idea for the moment of free will. And Abaddon... And we'll 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 put aside the issues with the with the term. I believe we're we're fine to say it out loud, but it is an appropriative term, and so we don't, you know, we're just acknowledge that and move on. Abaddon is the one who brings up the idea of the walkabout. He puts the idea in John's head that he ought to do this traditional thing, and and of course Locke takes him literally and makes the plan to go to the outback, which is how he got to Australia in the first place. Which is, of course, truly ironic because Abaddon is saying, you need to exercise your free will. Instead, sending him on the trip that he was, it seems, fated to take. Again, this is a really good way of interacting with this question that, that uh, Lindelof and Cuse do at this point in the series. Well, it's interesting, too, for a couple of reasons, because this, to me, the fact that Richard Albert shows up when, Albert. sorry, the fact that Richard Alpert shows up when Locke is a child and then we see Abaddon show up now, it does tell me that either there is like some sort of fate surrounding Locke that he would run into this island and these people again, or it tells me that what Locke has mistaken for fate is actually a group of people interfering in his life. That's interesting. Yeah, like he because he doesn't realize who these people are or or their right. connections. I mean, he even talks to Alpert and he doesn't know who Alpert is, right? He talked to him last season. He was part of the group. And so Yeah, to be fair, do you remember people you met when you were 5? No, I agree. I'm not saying that he should have, but I'm saying like he doesn't understand who the significance of these people in the same way that we as the audience understand them. And so, like, it is interesting to see them as, like, manipulating or coming into his life in this way because he's always thought he was special and that people were should be paying attention to him. And it turns out he was right. He just doesn't realize it. The other thing that I think is interesting, too, one, I could tell it was Lance Reddick as soon as he started talking, even though they didn't show his face at first. Come on. I'm going to recognize that voice anywhere. But second of all, Abaddon is a name of an archdemon or a devil, so the devil I've talking seen supernatural. I know that the devil talking to John Locke about free will. That's that's a very like paradise lost situation. Yeah. It also reminds me of the early 80s. Libby Newton, John, John Travolta feature two of a kind. You, you, I, I don't know. Podcasting that one. is a visual medium. I, I don't, don't know understand. that one. That, yeah. that grin didn't translate. OK, <laughs> going back to the island, we catch up with Locke in the present. And, I mean, a lot of stuff happens here, but basically it all comes down to a guy named Horace, a mass grave, and Christian and Claire in the cabin. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this was the writer's strike year. So some things kind of got 
compressed. So we didn't get a lot of like, oh, look, there's a burial pit. Next thing. Oh, he had a dream. Next thing. You know, it's very quick. But it's almost comedic, though, how quickly it yeah, goes. Like, yeah. especially with Hurley being there and being like, yeah. what is happening? Like, yeah, it's why, actually we, kind of funny. We didn't actually need Hurley for this. Our bad. You know, it's like there's an episode missing here, which is fine because I'm tired of side quests. Right. But like, it's great to have Hurley along because this is like a truly like mythic series of events, which Locke and Ben take very seriously because they both see significance in these things. Hurley is just like, why are we going to a a burial pit? Wait, this is the pit you shot Locke and dumped him into? And Ben is like, I overreacted. And he's like, Okay, like like it's a very like comedic, like Hurley is the Hurley is somehow the straight man to these two very serious people, right? Because he can un- he sees like the absurdity to the point where he says the only reason the three of us see this cabin is because we're the craziest ones, which I think is a very good way of describing this dynamic between the three of them. Uh, the big news here is that King Crazy himself goes into the cabin and sees not just Christian Shepherd, but Christian Shepherd's daughter, Claire, who is, last we checked, actually very much alive. Christian Shepherd is a, a corpse walking around, but this is actual Claire as far as we know. And it seems like if you didn't know any better, if you weren't really invested in this question, but not in the way it's being answered in this episode, it really seems like Locke might actually be the chosen one. This interaction, I don't know. I think, Tessa, I think he might be the main character. How does that make you feel? It makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. He doesn't deserve it. Maybe he just doesn't deserve it. Unless they're trying to... Dot, dot, (laughs) dot. Yet. Unless they're just trying to tell us that thinking you're the main character makes you a bad main character. I don't know. There's something about irony in here, but either way, I don't like it. I mean, I do like it because I think it's a very good storytelling technique, but I also don't like it because I'm just like, don't let him be right. Don't let him win. There's a literal needle drop in the very first scene of this episode with Locke's mother. And... At, you know, what you're talking about is basically Locke's going to go make his own kind of music. And I really wanted that to be the music cue. I'm not, I can't, the song may have not come out yet. But instead, much like this episode, every day, it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. That's this episode. <laughs> some Some quick hits from the rest of Cabin Fever. There are zero good things happening on that boat. Is he the bionic man? Like, I don't understand this, like, getup that they put on him with, like, the dials and the straps and I, stuff. I don't know, Like, man. It, it keeps, like, focusing in on it with the camera. Like, it's, like, a foreboding thing. I'm like, I don't know what this is. You have to tell me what it is before I can be scared of oh, it. Oh, oh, four seasons in The Lost, and now you know you need to be told no, what something is before just, you're afraid of I'm it? I'm just saying this is the most, like, it looks like he has a dial on his bicep. Like, is it supposed right. to, like, just, like, pump up his muscle? Like, is he Bane? Is he Bane? You're describing Bane. <laughs> I will be this credit card's reckoning. That's oh, a terrible Bane. Batman. <laughs> that is a terrible Bane. 
Watch Harley Quinn, y'all, if you don't already. Uh, well, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Harley Quinn, turn off this podcast and go watch Harley Quinn. It's a no, way better show. Don't turn off this podcast. <laughs> I was almost finished carbo loading. <laughs> I just like, okay, I do find the military thing terrifying, mainly because even when they were up against the others, the others did not have the firepower that these people have. These people have flamethrowers flamethrowers and they plan on killing everybody at least the others just wanted to you know what fork around with jack you know what the... flames don't kill smoke yeah apparently i, I like, like that he... I, I yeah that's gonna fix it flamethrower i mm-hmm, like that he mm-hmm. saw what the smoke monster could do and was like yeah i'm gonna go back yeah yeah anyway i i just like the little dial thing is like so weird but he does kill the captain of the ship and yep. the doctor Yep. Washed up on the shore last episode. Yeah, it's a really nice uh, timey-wimey thing there. Saeed gets a hold of the <laughs> the ship, the, the speedboat, the little boat that is now the Zodiac. And it's like, the Zodiac, the Zodiac, the Zodiac. Okay, guys, it's a boat. You could just call it a boat, but sure, whatever. So Saeed's got the Zodiac, and he is going to take Faraday's bearing and go back to the island and finally save people because uh, Lapidus has been commandeered by the kill squad. And he's like, he says to Desmond, let's go. And Desmond's like, nope, I'm not going back to that island. I think it's really funny that that Desmond stays behind because he's like, not when Penny's so close, which I get. I, I get. I understand. But I also think it's funny that in the very few scenes with Desmond in both this and the next episode after the captain dies it seems like Desmond's in charge like did he commandeer this boat is he he the captain now he does have military training I'm just saying like the rest of them follow him real fast yeah so speaking of Lapidus good guy Lapidus good guy Lapidus the end of the episode shows Jack on the island, uh, Jack and the others on the shore. This is really the only time we see him the whole episode. And a sat phone is dropped at their feet. And there are so many different ways to interpret what just happened. They pick the one that they shouldn't have. End of episode. Wouldn't it be hilarious if all of them left by the time Saeed got back? Like he gets to the beach yeah. and none of them are there. That, I mean, I know that yeah. doesn't happen, but it would have been really funny. Well, I mean, it sets us up for a good comedy of errors in the next episode. Oh, Lost, I've missed you. The The next episode is the beginning of the three-part season finale. There's no place like home. So Another Wizard of Oz reference. This is super fun because half of this episode is Jack is running. Kate is running with Jack. They run into Sawyer. Kate takes... The baby runs back to the beach. Jack and Sawyer are running. Kate gets back to the beach. Saeed's just pulled up. Now Saeed and Kate are running. There is so much running in this episode. Running. Oh, yeah. And like Jack is like, oh, well, we're going to take you back to the beach. And Sawyer's like, but Hurley's with them. So they have to go after Hurley. Okay, skip that part. I do think it's funny that this is the first time we've seen Sawyer and Jack on screen together since the beginning of the season, and their arguing makes Aaron cry. Why are you making the baby cry? I mean, instantly. Come on. So they eventually, Jack and Sawyer, come across 
Lapidus, who has been handcuffed. Lapidus can't catch a break. But, and, and Sawyer, you know, wants to do a little torture torture. And Jack's like, no, he's cool. He's with us. Good guy, Lapidus. And so, as soon as Sawyer says the words, Hurley is with Locke and Ben, everyone says we have to save Hurley. And they immediately, there's no discussion. We have to save Hurley. Sawyer has really come around in this season for me. Like, Hurley's his best friend. Who's a better pairing in this episode, Hurley and Sawyer or Hurley and Saeed? We've gone so far off the rails with this show that you would ask that question. I just want you to. I know. I just like, as soon as they're like, Hurley's with them and Sawyer, you could just see the deflated look on Jack's face because Jack has to go after him. But then Sawyer's just like, we're not leaving him behind. He's my best friend. That takes up a lot of episode real estate. We are much more concerned with the flash forward. But before we get there, uh, Faraday is left in charge of the Zodiac and he will get those people off the island. See, I told you Faraday's a good guy. Yeah, I was a little concerned that he was just going to ditch them. Nope. But no, he got he got back in there. I mean, I was concerned that there was no apparent stop for gas. But other than that... I just want to point out that the, the son of Christian Shepherd has a complicated and deeply flawed approach to ethics. The character named after John Locke, much like John Locke himself, doesn't have any. And Desmond Hume is pretty much all in it for himself and Penny. It is the scientist. It is the theoretical physicist named after the theoretical physicist who has the best sense of ethics among these named after people. Because, and, and I've known physicists, I would take, if, if I had a choice, I would take the physicist any day. As far as, you know, because it, it makes total sense to me because people who are concerned with these questions are embracing questions about the meaning of life, I think, more than any of those other people are. And to, to ask those questions means to rub up against what ethics is every day. I just think that's interesting. I think it's also interesting how well this emphasizes how many people have died on the island. Like, there's not that many people left on the beach. I mean, like, maybe a quarter, you think, of the original yeah. group? I mean, I don't, not think, great. I don't think it's going to take very many fairies to get them all across. No, no. So, the last thing that happens in the first part of this finale on the island is... Ben gives Locke very specific instructions about how to get to the actual Orchid station. And guys, I'm so excited. I cannot wait till we get to the station because I, I just, this is where the series gets truly insane as, as people who have seen it know. Ben at that point then offers himself up to the murder squad. This was my second guy of the episode because I was like, am I weirdly proud of Ben right now? I am. You know what? He's a bad guy, but he's our bad guy. So we've got the beach folks on the boat. We've got Locke responsible for saving the world. He is now the main character. And then we have the Jack and Kate and Sawyer's happy fun time squad who has been taken prisoner by Richard Alpert. 
I have to also say, isn't this like the third time Ben has used this whole getting captured as a distraction? Yes. And also, when Locke says he's going to move the island, I'm imagining the island being like a big sea turtle that just like, like its little flippers come out and like, you know, I'm making yeah. a motion. I know you all can't actually Once see again, podcasting is a visual medium. The motion. But if you imagine me putting my hands like little flippers, that's what I'm imagining. If it's not that, I'll be disappointed. So this episode is most notable because it shows us how the Oceanic Six, not how they got rescued, not what happened after they got rescued, but shows that immediate aftermath. Where this episode begins, they're about to get off a cargo jet and face a press gaggle right on the tarmac. That doesn't seem... I mean, and even Tony Stark got a burger first. Anyway... <laughs> Um, that's all I could think of. Burger. I'm going to need a burger and a press conference. But they get to see their families. Now, before we talk about that, though, let's skip ahead a little bit to the press conference. They don't get the burgers, but they do get the press conference. And Jack is their spokesperson because, of course, he is. Uh, he is the one who doesn't seem to be going through a complete mental breakdown, which, you know, I mean, great he masking. Is. He is. It's just, you know... Yeah. A lot slower and a lot more repressed. Jack and the others, presumably, have concocted this story that after the plane crashed into the ocean, the Oceanic 6 plus, well, at that point it was the Oceanic 5, um, plus three people. So a total of eight people survived the crash. And the currents took them to a deserted island where they survived for many, many days. Then a typhoon blew a fishing boat, or at least the remnants of a fishing boat, onto the shore, and they were able to take those remnants along with a life raft and get that to an island that was inhabited. And from that point, they were picked up. That's their story, and they're sticking to it. I mean, we've heard this story before. Jack told it at Kate's trial. Um, she said that I've heard you tell it so many times that it almost seems like you believe it. So there's nothing really new in this information besides the whole island hopping part of it. Right. Kate tells Jack back on the island that most people, when they lie, they can't look anybody in the eyes, but he does the exact opposite. Do you remember? Yeah. I think, and I said to you, I said, I think that's a doctor thing. I think so too, because you have to be able to look into somebody's right. eyes and say, you know, oh, well, you know, we're doing everything we can or whatever. Tessa, you'll be pleased to know, or maybe not, I don't know. Tessa, you might be surprised to know that throughout this season, oh my God, oh my, I just realized something. So hi, everybody listening to this podcast. So there was a, there was a meme on the Twitter this morning about pop-up videos. And Tessa asked me, what's a pop-up video? Thanks to the old YouTube, I was able to show Tessa what pop-up videos are. Why do I bring this up? If you know, you know. If you don't, during season four of Lost, they would often rebroadcast them during the season and they would use, they got the pop-up video treatment. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So several of the episodes had the pop-up video treatment that gave them, you know, extra little tidbits and information. Now, there's no place like home part one was given the pop-up video treatment. Um, it's called an enhanced episode for Lost. However... There is a substitution, 
a deletion of a scene and a substitution for another one. What's taken out is a part of the press conference with the fat joke. I mean, I would hope so. Right. You know, uh, Hurley does the cell phone. I'm so tired of fat jokes about Hurley. Like, come on. So what's substituted in its place is a slightly longer riff on the story of how they survived in which Jack reveals the names of the three who died. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you know? Do you have a guess? Well, do, is this something that's revealed later? I don't know. Oh, doesn't matter. Okay. I'm just, I'm curious why they made that point that like some of them survived and some of them didn't. Are you ready? Yeah. Boone. Okay. Libby. All right. Charlie. It's an interesting selection. I know. But as we know, you know, Jin did not, quote unquote, survive the plane crash. Right. She does say that. And that's why I'm so curious is that she's very definite about that detail. And I know the whole thing about when you lie, you have to know details. I get that. But it just seems like an odd thing to say. Right. It's it's interesting. And of course, this plays, you know, we come back to Hurley's flash forward with uh, Michael Cudlitz's character, who is really, you know, he has to tell you know, that detective that he never met Ana Lucia because that's part of the lie. Right. As you mentioned earlier, when they get off the plane, everybody has somebody except for poor Saeed, except, 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 hold on. He does have somebody. Hurley will adopt him. Hurley grabs him and shoves Saeed into a three-sided hug with his mom. It's wonderful. I am pretty sure Hurley's mom would have adopted that that kid. I agree. Yeah. If someone hadn't been waiting for Saeed outside of the hangar. Yeah, it turns out Saeed does have somebody. Nadia's there waiting for him. It's nice when you get to meet a character you're no- you know is going to be fridged later. Yeah. Well... Is it better or worse than the fact that Kate legit has nobody? That's true. All she has is Aaron, which explains why she so quickly gets that like maternal bond with Aaron. Okay, sure. Now, Sun has her parents and her dad, who Ooh. immediately goes into asshat dad mode. Except, wait, hold on. Oceanic has given these survivors tons of money. And turns out Sun's dad's having a bad day because somebody's attempting a hostile takeover. Except, hold on. Attempting is succeeded, and someone is Sun. She is the captain now. Wasn't that fun? That was such a great moment. That felt very much like like a good fight episode or something. <laughs> like, it, it was just, it was so nice to see Sun, like, I mean, she's been through so much on the island. She's not the same person that she was when she got on that plane. And so seeing her like take charge of her own destiny, but also thinking about Jin and thinking about like, you know, oh, you were you ha- always hated him. You ruined his life. Like you're one of the people I think is responsible for killing him. Like this very much feels like vengeance of her own on her father. So Kate has nobody. Saeed has Nadia. And Hurley's mom. And Hurley's mom. Sun has probably also Hurley's mom, to be honest, but she has a business empire now. Hurley, of course, as we know, with Cheech Marin's character, his dad, a complicated relationship. He doesn't want the money, but he's still got the money. 
and he just thinks everything's going to go bad. And there's a moment when the door, he gets home to his house, and the door's open, and he's like, what fresh hell is this? And arms himself, and at this point, you have to know what's happening. You have to know, but he doesn't know until he walks out and gets surprised with an island-themed surprise party. It's almost like none of these people have met people with trauma before. Like a surprise party with a theme about the thing that they were traumatized by. Yep. And of course, his mom invites the gang and Saeed's there. And it's just like a great time. It's so nice, isn't it? Everything's just going fine. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, this feels so awkward and torturous and yeah. awful. The only thing I could say is that Saeed, once again, is confirmed to be a romantic because as soon as he sees this girl off the plane, he immediately like starts making out with her. Oh, well, yeah. Once again, yeah. Saeed the romantic. And they're already together by the time they go to Hurley's birthday party. I, I love how you don't want to talk about Hurley because you know it's bad. But, of course, the other shoe's going to drop. Because Hurley's dad gives him the car, the car that we saw earlier. And as soon as Hurley sits down, he sees sees the odometer, and oh no, it's the numbers. Hurley can't catch a break, and he just runs. He just starts running <laughs> we have away. A like yep. he doesn't even get back into his own car. The numbers strike back, you guys. And lastly, we have Jack. Who does Jack have? Jack has his dead dad in a box. It's eulogy time, kids. And Jack gives a eulogy, but that's not really the important part of that scene. Guess who's at the funeral? That's right. It's Christian Shepherd's baby mama. This is the most soap opera thing I think that Lost has done so far because she was literally in a coma last time we saw her, and yep. now she's back. Yep. Holy Morrissey, Batman, his girlfriend was in a coma. <laughs> and of course, this is devastating because we said at the beginning of the the season when Kate said, I understand why you wouldn't want to be around the baby or I understand how you feel about the baby. We we speculated that perhaps Jack knew. And when he said, and you're not even related to him, we also speculated that maybe Jack knew. Now we have confirmed that Jack knows that Aaron is his nephew and that claire was or is his half sister right and we are left with a wait till next week we're gonna show you the rest of this finale with parts two and three i'm excited i'm i'm ready for this to get more unhinged i'm ready for it it will become very unhinged i'm I'm ready for myself and others to know what Locke means by moving the island yeah so yeah i'm ready i'm ready also to get back to the island in the flash forwards because to get back to the island he said that at the beginning of the series there's been conversations about it through all the flash forwards like i'm i'm ready to get there like let's let's get to the end game of the flash forwards all right so that's it for today join us next week when we'll be talking about parts two and three of there's no place like home and in two weeks guys get psyched because Sam Watches Star Trek will be returning. And what will we be watching? We will be starting The Next Generation, a show that I believe Sam has seen very little, if any, of. I am looking forward to knowing why Shut Up Wesley is funny. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. All right. 
In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at same underscore Morris9, and you can find Tessa at Suela Tessa. Until next time, Jesus Christ is not a weapon. <laughs> Yay!